My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and the host of the Coffin Fellows podcast. This season, our podcast is produced in partnership with Mighty Capital and features different Coffin Fellows as co-hosts. In this podcast, we dive deep into the personal narratives of some of the most successful names in the venture capital industry, but we're not here just to explore their highlight reels, however impressive they are. From failures and formative learning experiences to inflection points and aha moments, we discuss the real, authentic journeys that each individual goes through to become the best version of themselves in order to best serve the entrepreneurs they invest in. Covering various themes in venture capital investing, we speak with the world's top leaders in capital formation, all from a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Together, we'll unravel what truly makes a great venture capital investor. Now let's meet today's host and their guest. Welcome back to the Coffin Fellows podcast. My name is Jeff Harbach, and I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows, and I'm your host today. And today we're thrilled to be meeting with Chung Xu, who is a partner at Basis Set. Chung is a Coffin Fellow. Chung, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here, Jeff. That's so awesome to have you. I love having these conversations with fellows. So first, just a little bit about Chung. Chung is a partner at Basis Set, which is a firm that is by founders and operators for founders. She Previously, she was an investor at Upfront Ventures. She also has experience both as a founder and as an operator. And from an educational background, she got both an MBA and an AB in applied math and computer science from Harvard University. Chung, impressive background. Why don't you tell us a little bit about just yourself and also what you're currently doing at Basis Set? So Basis Set, we're a $165 million fund investing at the earliest stages in enterprise software and software infrastructure. I primarily focus on the software infrastructure piece in infrastructure developer tools. My partners and I were all former founders and operators, and we're building this firm to back to back founders and support founders. And kind of key to that promise is we build and curate these communities where we have other founders and operators that can support our portfolio. And I can highlight a few here. One of them is the hypergrowth network, which is go-to-market leaders at all the hot Silicon Valley companies. And another one is the Persistence, which is a nonprofit that we co-founded for women execs and leaders in the Valley. And the third is a stealth community for founders building developer tools. That's awesome. You're doing so many things at Basis Set. I, I'd love to hear a little bit, and you and I have talked about this before, but maybe to share with our listeners, how did you meet your partner? How did, how did this kind of, how did Basis Set come to be for you? I met my partner very serendipitously, I think just just like many things that happen in startups, it's all serendipity. So I, I was at a uh, Upfront Ventures, a, a different fund at the time, and a portfolio company as I was working with had discovered Basis Set and what Lan was building. And he said, oh, I really love what they're building. You should get to know them. And by the way, they're having a party in San Francisco today. You should just go crash it. So I crashed <laughs> the party. I met Lan. We instantly hit it off and we saw many of the same same things, same themes, same opportunities to invest in. And so we just kept in touch and traded notes. She didn't end up investing in that portfolio company, but but she ended up converting me to to joining her in building basis sets. And I'm very excited about the the opportunity that we really see to define the next generation of venture capital. You built such an incredible team there at Basis Set and the and it really starts with your partnership with Lan. I, and I love what you said about serendipity. You know, it's really a, it's a thing that many of us, when we get anxious or when we want to press forward and we want to see, you know, kind of action and, and things happen, it's hard to kind of be patient for, for that, those serendipitous moments to happen. Have you kind of seen that as well as you developed both through your career and as an investor? Yes, absolutely. I think 
I used to be very much a planner where I will plan what I want to be in X years and therefore what are the skill sets, what's experience I want to have. But over the course of my career, I have very much thrown that out the window. Now my planning is very evolutionary. So every day I just think, what is the most interesting thing I could be doing right now? Who are the best people I should be working with right now? And that over time has delivered a lot more like surprises and upsides than, than I believe possible. And right now, the best and the most interesting thing I should be working on is basis set. And the best people I should be working with are, are my partners. I'm very, very excited to, to be here. I just love that because it's a real focus on being present. And I love you do that so well, Chung. So let's you said that, you know, earlier on, you were more of a planner. Let's talk about that earlier on. So I'd love to just kind of dive into the story that is and the journey that has become your your life and your career. So why don't we start from the beginning? Kind of tell the tell us a little bit about and tell me a little bit about where you were born and a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, I was born in China in a small city a couple hours north of Shanghai called Liangang. And my parents uh, are both scientists. My mom was a chemistry teacher. My dad is a, is a chemist. And we didn't, we didn't have a personal computer until we immigrated to the United States when, when I was 11 uh, for my dad's job. And that was the first time we got a personal computer because I required it to do my schoolwork. And I instantly became fascinated with it. And at the age of 12, I saw, I was very, a big fan of this cartoon. And I really wanted to make a fan site for the main characters of this cartoon. And I, I reached out to someone else that made a fan site and I asked, how did you change the scroll bar pink? And then that's how she clued me into this world of HTML and CSS. And then that's how I taught myself how to code and build websites to honor my favorite cartoon. And, and I learned programming with databases and, and building front ends and, and things like that. And that's where it all started. Oh, my gosh. That is so awesome. So you, how old were you when you started, you know, kind of learning programming and doing this? You, you, I mean, you said it was after you immigrated here when you were 11, so maybe 11 or 12? Yeah, I started doing this when I was 12. Um, I was still in the process of learning English. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, building websites for, for my favorite cartoon was uh, was what I wanted to consume on my free time. So incredible. And your parents clearly are very educated. What do they think about you kind of diving into this new thing that you had as a personal computer in your home and wanting to, to program and learn HTML code? They didn't know. So my, high, my middle school got out at 2 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And I had several hours every afternoon before my parents got home. And they kind of viewed the computer as a, as a toy and a bit of a waste of time. I justified to myself that if I'm teaching myself something, then I can just pretend to my parents I wasn't doing this. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it worked for me mentally. And I think they never really thought much about it. I didn't have very much homework. So this was a great, great way to pass the time. And what do they say now? I don't think they understand what I do. <laughs> 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 has, has to do with technology and coding. Well, clearly they they had a, a big impact on you. I love their 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 backgrounds and what they've done. So, as you thought about now taking that from you know your early childhood of coding and learning computers and kind of doing this and teaching yourself new things all the time, how did you think about the decision to go to university and where you know what went into your decision about where to go and what to study while you were there? Yeah, I applied to a bunch of universities. And at the time, I wanted to be 
well, at the time, my parents wanted me to be a doctor. So I wanted anything but that. And I thought maybe I, I should learn engineering and programming and things like that. And I went to Harvard because it was really good school. Also, because they offered me the most generous financial aid package. So it was the cheapest school for me to go. I really found my groove um, in college where I could, I was being academically challenged. I could take classes on everything. What I discovered is uh, with all that exploration is I really like modeling the world in my head. I like trying to understand every aspect of the world in, in like a different kind of system, which ended up being more aligned with the, the discipline for applied math. Because you apply math to economics, to history, to culture, to science, and to try to understand it. So that's something that I, I would just take in classes I liked, and it fit the applied math graduation requirements the best. So, so that's okay. Okay, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna study applied math. I love that story. When I think about this for you, Chung, tell me a little bit about the the decision to not go like anything but being a doctor. What what was that? Was that just, you know, you're not the first to want to pave their own path from what their parents wanted them to do. But was it a kind of a, a defiance that you didn't want to do something that they wanted you to do? Was it because you've really already found your love as you've as you've described with applied math? What was it that said anything but being a doctor that helps you to really find what your true love was? I was like, and probably many teenagers, very defiant. So I wanted to go absolutely the opposite direction of what my parents wanted wanted me to do. I I think I also f- had a calling to 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 math and to engineering, and I didn't really feel a particularly strong calling to biology and chemistry. In middle school and high school, I was often the only girl in math competitions, only girl doing math or robotics type of projects and teams, and because I was good at it. It came naturally to me. Everything I can fit into my head and I can work out a model in my head. And I really enjoyed uh, doing all of that. I much less enjoyed memorizing a lot of facts. Uh, that was always very difficult for me. History was difficult. I can do it, but then I immediately forget it <laughs> because it, it's, history has, is so multi, has so many multifaceted that it was hard sure. for me to fit in a model over it. For those that are, that are now thinking about their careers and their passions for life, and they're being faced with decisions, some of them being uh, maybe what their parents want them to do or what society might want them to do. And then they're also faced with, you know, here's what I feel like my calling is, what my love is. These are difficult decisions. What, what would you say to others that are, you know, kind of similar to the 12-year-old Chung or the 18-year-old Chung or the 22-year-old Chung that went through these different decision points, these different inflection points, what would you say to that individual that you learned about yourself, making sure that you followed your own passion or what you describe as your calling in life? Yeah. I now kind of operate under the principle of warmer, warmer, colder, colder, which I think it's a, it's a childhood game where every decision uh, about whether I want to choose project X or project Y or, or this job or the other job or take on this thing or the other thing, it's always, do I feel like I'm alive when I'm doing this? Do I feel that, like I'm thriving when I'm doing this? Do I feel like this is something where it comes to me very easily and I really enjoy using that skill? Then if so, I'll just keep doing it and I get happier and happier and I'm more in the state of flow and it's relatively easy for me, but to others, it might seem that, wow, that's really difficult. 
just because my mind works differently. And the more I exercise and the more I try to figure out how do all the pieces fit together with my personality and how my mind works, the happier I am. And the, the times where I found it more challenging is when I feel that, okay, society wants me a certain way, or the, this is a recipe for success, or thinking about who are the people that came before me that I want to look up to, how do I copy their success? Those things just never quite worked well for me. I always try to do it to some extent, but it doesn't, I, I always feel like I'm an inferior version of someone else. And what works well for me is the, the warmer, warmer, cooler, cooler game where I just keep trying to go towards what's warmer for me. Such a positive framework. I've never heard it framed that way, but I love that. So Chung, we all go through different formative experiences in our life, things that really shape the person that we are. And many of those things are inflection points, you know, kind of points that we come to in your, your math, um, applied math major. So you, you understand the, the concept of inflection points. Well, we all come to these points in our life where it's a big decision and, you know, the, the decision that we make impacts the rest of the things that happen in our lives. Maybe you can tell us some of the formative experiences or inflection points that you came to throughout kind of early adulthood to where you are today that have that you feel like have been some of those really critical formative uh, moments for you. There has been at least a couple inflection points. The first one was when I did my startup. And I've always wanted to do, I've always been enamored by startups, always wanted to do startups starting from high school through college and for a class project in my senior year, um, I worked together with a friend and built this business plan for a startup. And after college, um, he was working on it nights and weekends, and both of us had full-time jobs. And then one day he said, I'm going to quit full-time and really do this startup. And I said, well, I, I, want to, I want to do this with you. So I quit as well and really plunged head, headfirst into the startup. And what I learned that, that year was that this is something that really energized me. The idea that you can envision a future, a better future, a better world, and you can work towards that dream, that motivated me like no other. And also what was really energizing me to get out of bed every day is we recruited a team of 20 that are all similarly energized by the same vision, by the same vision of this better world. And working together with people all pulling towards the same vision, that was incredible. But I also learned what was difficult about startups, which is we were pretty early on in our careers, had no idea what I was doing. Honestly, I felt like I was a blind leading the blind uh, very often. And sure. we, we made many mistakes um, uh, along the way. And, and I'm sure we did not do everything <laughs> the most optimal way. I learned that there is an emerging startup ecosystem in Silicon Valley where there are a lot of people that have done it before or are doing it and figuring out right now. And I needed to get plugged in. I needed to learn from the best because the gap from just the vision and the dream today to something that's actually uh, realized and actually makes a big impact in the world, there's a huge gap there. And there was a lot of growth that I personally needed to go through. So I, I, I did find my, my passion and my calling around, around startups and technology and envisioning the future and building towards it but also saw what I needed to do in order to, to make that really happen and at scale. You mentioned there was another inflection point that you might want to, to share. Yeah. Yeah. The second one is a bit of a different flavor, which is, I think, initially in my career, I've always been seeking big brands. I mean, I went to Harvard twice. I paid a lot of tuition to the school. My first job out of college was BCG. 
when I got into VC, I of course looked up to the best brands uh, in terms of firms and also individual investors in the business. And it's hard not to. They have the the biggest Twitter following. They have the shiniest resumes with the best investments. They're on the Midas list. I mean, we're an industry where because all the information is private and so opaque to the outside world that that's all I had to to really hang on and to to know what what good looks like. I think this this transformation from seeking big brands to to really not <laughs> uh, it happened gradually, but there was one conversation that was pretty pivotal for me. So I had the opportunity to meet with a very known venture capitalist who has a fantastic portfolio, great returns, and I spent over an hour with him. And the entire hour, he was grilling me on how can I, you know, a baby VC at the point, how can I possibly win a deal against him? How can I possibly find the best deals and have the founder choose me over him? Because he had the the year of this hotshot CEO at this company that's everyone knows that's like really, really big outcome right now. He and he can have that CEO call any founder he's trying to win. And and of course it will pick him. And he grilled me, grilled me for an hour. And I said, well, I, I'm pretty good at going deep and being very thesis driven and, and being very thoughtful about the spaces that I cover. And I think I can find opportunities. But he says, okay, but how does that tie to you winning deals? How does that tie to you to becoming, to be better than me? And that really shook me because I wanted to hear him. And I, and I had looked up to him before. I had pondered that conversation for, for the months after. And I still think about it every so often. But now I'm maybe a couple years um, after the conversation and I've realized a few things. One thing is I haven't seen him in a competitive deal in the past two years. His brand definitely, you know, is much bigger, but I don't actually see him and I don't hear about him in the deals that I think of are really good. He, he might be, you know, totally just at a totally different weight class, but, but I, I feel that maybe not because I think the best companies of today they're not talking to him. I'm not sure if he's that relevant today. And the second thing is, I realized that I there are just because he had that one lucky strike and actually multiple lucky strikes, it doesn't mean that he's going to be the the VC of choice for every single founder. It doesn't mean that he's going to be more thoughtful and and to be the preferred choice. And honestly, his mannerism was a little bit off putting. So, <laughs> so I I think that I can. By my hard work, um, even if I don't have the same level of brand, but I can work harder and I can just focus more and and I can punch above my weight class. And there there'll be a great class of founders that choose that. And it's the same with the with the network that I choose, which is I don't go for the people with the biggest Twitter following, with the biggest potential brand, because everyone's chasing those people. But I don't necessarily think that they are the most thoughtful. I go for people in my network from founders to other VC friends to just operators I like hanging out with, with people that I think are extremely high quality, super sharp, very thoughtful, but perhaps a little bit under the radar. And they are, I think that they are going to be the, the leaders of tomorrow, that they're going to be the ones that's going to be the most thoughtful and really shape our industry in the decades to come. Chung, thank you so much for sharing that experience. That's you know, as I think about that and think about the ways that could have gone, many investors could have sat in that room with that investor and felt very overwhelmed and could have had their imposter syndrome really kind of take over. 
and maybe not have survived that that conversation. Survived meaning they they might have left the the industry or felt like you're right. I can't compete and would have gotten it out. And instead, you took that as looking through kind of the the noise to signal, and you helped it reinforce your own authentic voice, your your kind of your authenticity, which which clearly shines through in everything that you've done. That's a really important learning and important formative experience for people to hear and for you to be recognizing. Is there anything else that kind of from that experience that has carried through to today to validate who you are, what you're doing, and why you get so excited about jumping out of bed every morning? Yeah. I mean, I was honestly very shook from that conversation. I think I cried in the, in the middle of the conversation. I had tears kind of welling up in my ears. I had no idea if this VC even saw it, <laughs> um, but I, it shook me for for months and then one thing that's that i i tend to do because of my way of thinking which is you know build mental models in the world which is i always want to hear multiple perspectives so then i then talked about this conversation to to other vcs and other friends and to get their reactions i always want to look at a problem from every single angle i can think of and get all the data and then figure out what do i believe what do i believe is the truth so i i did that with the conversation i um, I got a variety of perspectives about this. And also I continue to mull over this with the new data points as I gather, which is how I landed at my uh, current, my current core beliefs um, around betting on incredible people, regardless of, regardless of what social media or brands or any of the fuzzier uh, metrics or the maybe man vanity metrics will say about them. And that has served me really well. In my framework of warmer, warmer, cooler, cooler, I definitely feel like that's warmer, warmer. And this is a model that I, I believe will lead to best-in-class returns and working with just the best people. The focus on lifelong learning is so huge because that helps you really inform your expertise and your openness to new ideas and really your zone of genius, which is something that I want to talk about here a little bit. The concept of... The zone of genius comes from one of, you know, we as at Coffin Fellows, we focus on the four pillars that we believe lead to becoming the best investor possible and the best investor that you can be. And the first pillar is really all about radical self-belief and a willingness to bet on ourselves and this idea of conviction and zone of genius. Now, conviction can oftentimes be misunderstood in our industry, it can be misunderstood for hubris or for overconfidence and and can even have some some undertones that are not um, helpful to the conversation. But really what this boils down to is the willingness to learn and to grow and to bet on yourself and to be this this constant learner. Tell me about how you view zone of genius and how you've kind of identified what your zone of genius is. My zone of genius is very much to go deep versus to go broad. I'm not a generalist investor. I very much like to uh, focus and my focus area is uh, anything that's very technical around infrastructure, developer tools. I can lean on my experience programming since I was 12. I can lean on studying computer science and and math in in college and also just just continue to play with and, and learn new products on the side because that's what I enjoy. I'm very thesis driven and I very much... Uh, like having a close-knit network and community. I value quality over quantity. And my, my zone of genius is around, like I'm able to rapidly ingest lots of new information and then organize it into my mental model. 
And how this works in a day-to-day investing is because I'm invested at the C stage, we're all about trying to see new markets as they're emerging. And the, the data around these new markets, there's no consensus. By definition, there's no consensus. Because if there's consensus, and that's likely, you know, much later stage than what I cover, it's likely very obvious already, or it's likely, you know, not interesting at all. So I need to see the present very clearly and form form my conviction. And the way I do it is I just gather lots and lots and lots of data in every single direction about this company, about our competitors, about all the companies that have tried similar things before and, and didn't work or have tried similar things before and and working what other VCs uh, think about every about everything, what operators are saying, what the founders on the ground experience are. I, I even go into like product communities around these emerging trends and just to simply understand what what the ethos is from every single uh, perspective of that community. And it is totally okay that some of it comes back super skeptical or think that this is a very small market. I think the most interesting investments are where a lot. A lot of the market just don't see the opportunity. They just don't see it. And they think the market is too small. But, but there is a growing sub-segment for whom this opportunity really makes sense and it gets much bigger. And I get there by just ingesting lots of, lots of information. And then I organize it in my head into a framework. And when I first dive into a market, my framework is going to be very basic. Maybe it's just like, you know, into three categories. But as I continue to ingest information, my framework gets a lot more nuanced. Maybe it becomes a three by three or like a three by three by three, like a a cube or something. And if I have, if I keep refining my framework, every time I get a new piece of information, I test it. That does it, is this consistent with my framework? If so, then I slot it into its drawer. If it's not consistent with my framework, then I retest it to understand why. And I probably will evolve my framework or I dismiss information um, because it because I think it doesn't fit for for a structural reason. So with with that, I can hold a lot of frameworks in my head, which allows me to hold a lot of information in my head, and and so my pattern matching and understanding opportunities just become a lot faster. That's my um, my process, and that's what works for me really well um, based on based on how my mind works. I think I think everyone's mind works very differently. And you had to figure out what works best for each of you. And at the same time, I couple this with, with getting to know founders. And I have a mental model about founders too, uh, playing with products. And I just slot everything in. And that's, that, I think, is my zone of genius. Such an important discussion to have and such an important reflection on this, Chung, because when we talk about zone of genius, there's often a discussion that goes to, are you born with it or is it something that can be built? And clearly looking at your background, you were, you were born with certain characteristics that are very clear to see. I mean, you were, you're someone that was curious as a child, that you were, you, you really dove into the programming at a young age. You were in some ways rebellious or defiant, you know, to not going the, the medicine route or the, the physician or the science route, rather going the math route. But that defiance was not just for the sake of being defiant. It was to find your own voice and to be really authentic to your true passions, which again, re-emphasize you constantly learning and building and developing this zone of genius. So, so much of what you're talking about here is important for listeners to hear because you don't have to just be born with a particular zone of genius. Back to, you know, kind of the, the Malcolm Gladwell, what he's popularized as the, you know, um, 10,000 hours. You put the time in 
if you become a voracious learner on a topic, which you clearly have done with your mental models, and you become this, you, you make it your zone of genius. And that's so impressive to hear how you walked through that. How does that now influence your thesis and your thesis both as it is today and how it is how it continues to develop as you learn more and develop more over my invest my operating and investing career i've always been trying to figure out what is my where do i spike i i fundamentally believe that the best founders and the best vcs are all spiky individuals that you really spike on certain dimensions and and leaning into those spikes is what's going to lead to the outsized outcomes as a founder and also as an investor. So over time, um, I've become a lot more crystal clear in w- what my spikes are. And it is not in generalist investing. I've, I've tried a, a lot of versions of, should I, should I focus on this? Should I focus on that? Should I and do it this style or that style? I've tried a lot of different things. And I think without the data points from trying all these things, I wouldn't know either. And what's coming out pretty loud and clear for me and in this in this market and the opportunity we have is that I want to be pretty deep and focused on investing in technical teams, building products uh, in infrastructure and developer tools. And I roughly um, form my thesis and in four, four themes. One is raise the ceiling. Second is lower the floor. Third is open source. And last is data privacy. We won't go into the, the details here, but I have double clicks on all of these themes. But this has been a journey that's very like evolutionary. Uh, I didn't have the four themes formulated a year ago, and I'm pretty sure in a year that they will look pretty different. And how the how what the double click will look like will be completely different um, in a few years. I'm not sure if I think there might be actually zero overlap of what it will look like in a few years. But I my true north has has always been to understand where I spike and how does that match with the market opportunity and continue to just iteratively refine it while taking all the new information and having it constantly challenge my, my thesis, my strategy, my, my own personal product market fit. Chung, you're a, a Coffin Fellow in class 23. What has your journey in Coffin Fellows, what have you gained from your journey in Coffin Fellows or what has that journey meant to you? I've really, really enjoyed my experience with the Coffin Fellows. I joined three years ago, and I've been so lucky to have Coffin Fellow on my side at two funds. So the first half of my fellowship, I was serving at um, Upfront Ventures, which is a very fundamentally different fund with a different strategy where I learned a lot about uh, just investing and, uh, and building networks and just exploring all the different strategies out there. And then now as an emerging manager at BasisSet and working with uh, my partners who are, who are fellow f- former operators, Coffin Fellow has been incredible in, in guiding me on, on how we should build our firm. Because as an emerging manager, I, I now feel like I'm a founder of a startup where the, the degrees of freedom are just much broader to me. And, but also our position in the market is, is a lot earlier as well. So Coffin Fellows has been really incredible to me, both at a big traditional firm and also as an emerging manager. So Chung, the, the, the journey is long and winding. And this, you know, one of the phrases that I love is it takes, a, it takes a village to raise a child or it takes a community. And there's, I'm sure there's so many people along your path that have been influential 
Um, do any one or two of them, maybe your parents or others, stick out to you that have been particularly influential to you that you just want to express gratitude towards as you've been able to evolve into where you are today? Yeah, there are two, um, and they're both women. One is my mother. My mom is incredibly brave. She immigrated to the United States when she's 42, and she didn't know English. Uh, she was a chemistry teacher in China, and she had to learn English, learn a whole new skill set. She had a variety of different jobs as a waitress at a Chinese restaurant, as uh, just a staffer at a, a Korean dry cleaner, at, as a staffer at a cafeteria. She, she had so many different jobs all at the same time, uh, taking classes on the side to learn English. Now she, she's a lab manager for a cardiology lab at um, UMass Medical School. I'm extremely proud of her. And also, it's really difficult to immigrate when you're 42. The culture shock, the generation shock, the just beyond beyond the language and the practical logistics is really challenging. And I've seen her, I've watched her wrestle with all of that. And it's been really, really admirable and um, incredible to watch. And she, she is very straight, the most, the, the bravest and the most courageous woman that I know. And the second person that, that I think has really influenced me and I'm really grateful for is my partner, Lon. Uh, she took a bet on me to bring me on as a partner at Basis that's much like she takes bets on founders, except this is taking a leap of faith that I will be able to deliver and be a good partner to her. And she has given me an incredible opportunity, and I'm so excited to be building the firm with her. And last year, we brought on a third partner, Sheila, who is also just incredible uh, women. And I think without, without my partners... Uh, we will not be able to build this firm, that's for sure. But with the three of us together, we can go 10x, 100x, more than what each of us could do together. And um, and Lon has been very visionary in seeing what the opportunity is to reimagine venture capital in this very crowded landscape of you know thousands and uh, thousands of funds and, and many thousands of, of VCs all vying for attention. Incredibly inspiring stories of, of, of incredible women. Thank you so much for sharing those. Chung, you are an incredible inspiration to me and to so many around you. I love your embracing of your zone of genius, of your authenticity, and of your search for constantly trying to be the best version of yourself. Uh, this has been a, a, a fantastic interview, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. That's a wrap. Tune in next week for another candid conversation on what makes a great VC investor with your host, The Kaufman Fellows.